Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today is Friday, June the 11th, and this Pentecost season, we study the true word of God, and as we know, the Holy Spirit helps us put on Christ's goggles as we study 2 Kings chapter 8. There's a fascinating reality in here, a Shunammite woman, uh, 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 the kings, the Judah, and Jehoram, and Hazael, and uh, Azahiah. I mean, you go through the list, it is, it is fascinating, unfortunately, not always ending great, but yet we know that we need the law, and we need the gospel, and we'll get them both this morning. So let's dig in, the gifts are ready, ready for you. A special thanks to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's Word, we have with us regular guest Pastor Scott Adel of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church and School in Collinsville, Illinois. Pastor Adel, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Pastor, how was your Pentecost summer for you, your family, and the Saints and Good Shepherd? Uh, it's been going well. We've, uh, I mean, yeah, like you said, it's been Pentecost and Trinity, and we've been talking about the Holy Spirit, and especially the fact that He is the Spirit of Truth. I mean, this is one of the things that's come up in our readings a couple times, and it is, uh, it is nice to have a source of truth in a world that is full of the devil's lies, and, and their lies on all sorts of levels, state, national, international, as well as kind of personal lives often as well. And knowing that the spirit of truth comes to us with the eternal word is something that is refreshing and, and gives us an anchor in these times. Oh, that is, and that's a great way to put it, because sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll speak about the, um, the Holy Spirit in different ways, but that's a great way of speaking is he's the spirit of truth which opens our eyes to actually see the truth because how many times do we watch the news or we listen to people or whatever you're doing and you're kind of your question always is is that true and here we have the holy spirit yeah. which gives us the truth the way the truth and the life so forth so that's a that's a great focus and um yeah your family the church what anything else going on yep i mean it's uh school's out so it's summertime and swimming lessons and all that other stuff has begun, so now they're enjoying it. <laughs> good. Very good. Well, as we are looking at 2 Kings chapter 8, um, and as Pastor said so well, we are looking at the truth, the truth from our Lord, and sometimes, um, as we're seeing in 2 Kings, you're kind of like, what does that mean? And that's what we're going to be covering today. So, Pastor, we need the Lord's help. Can you begin our time in prayer? Yeah, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here to read your word. As we do so, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And uh, by your word, lead us to the truth and help us to always come back to your word as our source of truth uh, in, throughout the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Pastor, there's there's parts of Second Kings that seems like you're almost... You're not quite sure where you are in the historical realm. Um, you're also unsure of where Israel and Judah are going <laughs> in the whole realm as yeah. well and how Syria fits into this. Um, what are some thoughts you have to 
summary or background or contextual things to kind of help us pull this all together as we look at chapter eight? Yeah, well, one of the things we'll see is, and you've seen it throughout, obviously Elisha is, I guess, maybe the, 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 the second major prophet and king, if you think of Elijah first. And one of the things that you see is their interactions with the kings, especially of the northern kingdom, although also of the south, and how well that goes or doesn't go. And we're going to have, this time we're not only going to have interactions with a king of Samaria, but we're going to have interactions with, I guess, a future king of Syria, which Mm -hmm. is a little bit different. Uh, We we don't often have... uh, that many records of the prophets going to other kings, although we do have some people in exile. And I mean, one of the prophets we'll talk a little bit about is Jonah, who mm-hmm. also comes up later on in Second Kings. But the other thing that you see in Kings is repetition, and usually it's repetition in a bad sense. And one of the things that you get over and over again in regard to the northern kingdom is, and so and so died. And he followed after the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And, and this reflects back to when Jeroboam set up idols at the southern part of the northern kingdom and the northern part of the northern kingdom in order that people would not go to the tabernacle or the temple to worship the true God. This gets them off on the wrong foot. And no other northern king ever undoes that. And so whenever he talks about a new king, <laughs> and a new king, no matter how long he reigns, and some of them reign for a very short period of time, but no matter how long he reigns, they died and they still followed after the sins of Jeroboam. This kind of gets amplified with Ahab, who you've already read a little bit about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Ahab's family is an exceedingly idolatrous and wicked family. Going even so far as, I mean, Ahab was there with Elijah on Mount Carmel, he sees all of it going on, and yet he still is an idolater. And his wife uh, chases after Elijah, and he goes into the desert, and you know Elijah wishes that he were dead. So you see that kind of repetition. So you know that things are not going well in the north. But here in chapter 8, as well as some of these surrounding chapters, we see that Ahab's family has worked itself into the family of the kings of the southern kingdom. So it's worked its way into David's household. And this is a sign that things are going very bad in the south as well. And so as, as you're reading this, if you're reading along and at least jiving with what what the author is putting down, you see that things are really bad in the north. And then when you see Ahab's family cross over to the south, you just have to shudder and think, oh, no. <laughs> this is going to go bad there too, and indeed it does. Indeed it does. It does. Yeah, that is a, a wonderful review, Pastor, because it to bring it back to Jeroboam is very important because um, it's almost like once you lay down those idols, nobody wants to get rid of them. I mean, there's references of how well they got rid of that the the Baal one, but they didn't get rid of the other ones, and it just mm-hmm. feels like they never fully go back and even even that moment you have for Ahab in first kings all of a sudden he seems to have kind of a moment of repentance this is great this is wonderful yep. and it, it just doesn't come to fruition 
to anything other than more idols that he has. So, you know, who we can't we can't blame anybody per se. It's just uh, got to repent, and that's the same for us. We have idols. We need to repent and and go back to the Lord. So, in chapter eight, reflects yeah. that that it just, it's just like a a burden. Uh, what do you call it? They're just dragging. Uh, thorn in the flesh kind mm-hmm. of feeling. They just never are able to be free in the Lord. So, any other thoughts for chapter eight? Yeah, because you mentioned uh, Jeroboam again and then not getting fixed. Uh, another thing that you will see, and we'll talk about it in this chapter, is God's faithfulness to His promises. Mm. That He is faithful. He, he He does what He says He's going to do, especially in regards to good things. And one of the things that you did see, this isn't in chapter 8, but we will see God fulfilling his promises here in chapter 8. But one of the things in regard to Jeroboam and the shrines that he set up, God did tell him by a prophet that the day would come when that altar would be broken and it would be desecrated. But he said that actually doesn't happen during any of the times when a northern king is on the throne in Samaria. It actually only happens, I believe, when Josiah, who is a southern king and is zealous and faithful, not only cleans out the south, but then backtracks and cleans out the north right. as well and fulfills the promises that God made uh, in regards to the north, that he, he would crush those idols and cleanse that place. Wow. It reminds you again that God keeps his promises, even though it might not be right in front of us. Um that is that is really good. Well, we could talk all day <laughs> and talk about <laughs> all of these things, but what's what's laser focus here to the text? And as we look at this, um, uh, reminder to our listeners: we'll be reading from the English Standard Version, and we are in Second Kings chapter eight, and it begins by almost going back. I mean, we bring back the Shunammite woman and the situation yeah. that happened there. So I that, I love this is one of those moments where he kind of like gives us a little breather. Um, from saying how bad the kings are, which is nice. Um, Naaman was a nice mm-hmm. retreat from that, and and here we hear it as well. So let's dig in. The gifts are ready, ready for you. Now Elisha had said to the woman, whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And at the end of seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, O Lord, my Lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. So, Pastor, we hear about the Shunammite woman, and can you give us some, well, give us kind of a review and what's happening here? Yeah, well, this is, this is one of the interesting things. So if you if you remember Elijah and Ahab, one of the things that got Elijah was in trouble was, was a prophecy about a famine. And at that time, the famine was 
for three years. And, of course, when he comes back, the king had been hunting for him everywhere. And Elijah would say, no, no rain will fall unless it's by my word. And then he comes and does that thing with the prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel. And then after that, you know, it, it pours and the famine ends. Uh, here we have Elijah pronouncing a famine, although this time it's not just three, it's for seven years. Mm, mm-hmm. And this is, this is one of the things that we talk about when we're, when we're talking about in confirmation class, the close of the commandments, and uh, God talking about uh, visiting the sins of the fathers to the sons to the third and fourth generation. And one of the ways that we talk about that is if children and grandchildren continue in the same sins as their fathers, that quite oftentimes the, the punishment or the, uh, the results of those sins get worse each succeeding generation. And of course, uh, in the close of the commandments, I mean, he contrasts with, so I show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments, right? And so we, we show kind of the, the superiority and, and the, the magnificence of God's great mercy going down to a thousand generations. But here you have a, a son of Ahab on the throne, clearly following in the footsteps of his father. He's slightly uh, nicer to the prophets, but if you remember back in chapter uh, 6, I think it was, mm-hmm. he had also cursed Elisha, uh, and possibly because they're in the middle of this drought at that time, they were also in the middle of a siege with Syria, and he had sought Elisha's life. And uh, here you have this drought that's going to go on seven years. Obviously, things are not going well. But at the same time, you have him at least interested. He, he sees Gehazi, and he knows that he's Elisha's servant, and he's asking kind of about the miracle that Elisha has done. And it, as one of the one of the commentaries I read is he clearly see he's he's kind of fascinated with this type of thing, but it's never a demonstration that he actually has faith. He's kind of wowed by miracles, which is, as you know, one of the things that Jesus runs into in the New Testament when he's going around Judea and Galilee and healing people. There are very many people who are interested in his miracles, but as for listening to what he has to say, not nearly as interested. And that appears to be some something like this appears to be going on. He, 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 he's fascinated with these miracles. He wants to know more about them, some that he hadn't heard about, and Gehazi's filling him in on this. And then he says, oh, but by the way, here's here's an example of one of his miracles. Here's, <laughs> here's the woman, and there's the child that Elijah restored to life. And the king is kind of amazed. He, he likes the story, and <laughs> I think this is one of the few times you have uh, one of Ahab's family doing an actually good thing in that he restores land of the woman. Remember, Ahab had famously taken land from someone else. Yeah. Uh, here he restores land to a woman, and as a bonus, just says, here, whatever, whatever you would have earned for those years you were missing, we're going to get it back for you. And just doesn't. A legitimate good deed, which is a good thing, you know. Even, even bad kings <laughs> could do good, good things. Uh, once in a while, give give credit where due, I guess. Right, right, and that is a, a good 
good a good thought on he obviously was interested in what God was doing. Like, oh, that sounds good. That sounds mm-hmm. really good. And then he makes a good decision, but clearly um, he does not <laughs> make a lot of faithful decisions either. And it just makes me realize we see that in today's world where people are very interested in faith in general. They might be interested in some of the Bible stories, but for whatever reason, they still don't really want to believe. And so it's it, it, it just, to me, it's been fascinating about First Second Kings is that how impatient we become because we want the results now. Um, we want people to believe and understand the whole thing. But even, even you know, here, here's Naaman, you know, in chapter 5, Naaman gets healed. He goes, gives thanks. He wants to give a gift. And part of it probably was a little bit of, well, that's what the old Gimmon God will do. You know, you give him a little gift, and yep. then he'll keep blessing you. And so we're always in this journey of, of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, like you said, of truth, teaching us, forming us, um, guiding us to that truth. And here... You know, um, God God worked through that, and he does still today. So any other thoughts on those verses? Yep. This is really fascinating. Well, like we were saying, that there, there are many people who come and see this. So the child is right in front of him. Yeah. He sees proof that Elisha is a prophet of God, of the true God, of the God who raises the dead. And he's like, well, that's neat. <laughs> but that's about as far as it goes. <laughs> he, he's kind of amazed, but it doesn't really go any further. And it, it, it is stunning. I mean, we were talking about Pentecost. So, I mean, you see this exact same thing on Pentecost. They they were hearing a miracle. And everyone that day recognized something had happened. Everyone, 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 even the people who didn't believe. Nevertheless, they recognized something had happened. And so you have some who are interested and want to know more and come to believe. You also have, on Pentecost, everyone recognizes that something happened. Some people are interested, they want to know more, they come to believe, they're baptized, this kind of thing. But you also see, for those who eventually go on not to believe, nevertheless, they know something happened. Mm. And so they have to come to some kind of explanation for what happened, because they don't believe they don't believe that it's it's the Holy Spirit. They don't believe it's God at work, so they have to come up with something. And I mean, you see there at, at Pentecost, they come up with some silly nonsense story, right? That the the, uh, the apostles are jabbering on and they're drunk, and this is silly talk, <laughs> which is actually not far from what much of the world does today in regards to the church. That that's jabber. That's silly talk. That's nonsense. But you also have here, as we were saying in the in the Old Testament, here with uh, this king, as well as multiple times when people saw miracles. I mean, he, he saw this son who had been dead alive again, and he thinks it's interesting, but he's going to go on and not believe after that anyway. It's a sad thing. It, yeah, it does make you grieve, no doubt about it. And it, it does put a new... Uh, little bit of a different perspective for me on Pentecost because we will we love the numbers like thousands of people were baptized in one day but as you said so well the reality is that it might have been thousands of people but there were thousands of other people that didn't get baptized at all I mean they didn't believe at all like oh that's nice fire's cool I like when people speak in my language but after that it was like I'm I'm going home I'm going to do whatever I do in in those days and so like so that happened and then 
they go on with their day. <laughs> right. Yeah, they're going to continue with the sacrifices and go home to their synagogue. I mean, it's just one of those things. So it shows us the long-suffering. As you said, God is faithful to his promises, um, that he is long-suffering and very patient with us. Because let's be honest, there's plenty of things that we've read in the Bible and go, well, that's nice. And then we move on. Mm-hmm. Or we see the Lord work in the world. Like, oh, that's nice. And then we just go about our day doing tasks that aren't really that important and so forth. So, yeah, it really relates today in wonderful ways. So this woman is restored. The king stumbles on a good deed. Um, it shows that God is faithful even among evil kings. So anything else before we move on? No, we can head on. To All right. So here we go. This is a, 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 this, it gets fun. This is getting fun. Okay. Verse 7, and we'll go through verse 10. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, Take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord Yahweh through him, saying, Shall we recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord Yahweh has shown me that he shall certainly die. So, like you said before, we have a, we have an, all of a sudden we're getting a, a feel for Syria. Not just a commander from Syria, like uh, Naaman. Now we actually see the king interacting and and him going to Israel and saying, this God has something to say. Let's go to Elisha and hear what he has to say. What's happening in these verses? Well, as you say, Elisha's well outside. And as, as far as I know, this is maybe as far as he gets outside of mm. uh, Israel or what, the northern kingdom or whatever. And he's visiting a foreign king and, the, and that king's second in command or whatever you want to call him. And it, it's a continuation of something that had happened earlier. When, when Elijah had been chased out into the wilderness by uh, Jezebel, mm-hmm. remember that he, he wanted to be done. He, he, just, he just wanted to be completely done. God, take me now. I'm a failure. And God says to him, well, there's some things that need to be done first, and one of them is he anoints Elisha to be his uh, servant. But he also says, we've got to go anoint a king of Syria, and uh, there's one other thing, maybe a king in the north, I can't remember. But th- this is kind of following up on that, that uh, Elisha goes and anoints this, in some fashion, anoints this soon-to-be king of Syria uh, all the way up in Damascus. And uh, when he's talking with the king's second in command, uh, he has this interaction with him, and the guy's asking, is he going to recover? The king wants to know if he's going to recover. And then in verse 10, the the commentaries I read said, it's worded very interestingly. And so Mm. it says, go say to him, you shall certainly recover, but the Lord has told me you shall certainly die. And there's another way of saying it. Go say to him, uh, or go say, you shall not recover, for the Lord has shown me he shall certainly die. And it, uh, it could be spoken, it would sound the same, and when, when obviously when you're 
when you're in translating it, you have to pick one way to put it down. So most of them say, go say to him instead of go say no. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's an interesting way of wording it. And it, it is because uh, Elisha, as a prophet, knows what's going to happen. And the guy's going to inquire about that next. But And it's fascinating because even if you have the other translations how you look at it basically he's like yeah yeah you're gonna recover but you're also gonna die mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just yep. this cryptic crazy Which answer is of course true of everyone right well yeah we could say that all day <laughs> am i gonna recover well yes but no you know it's a really really encouraging thing you're still mortal it's uh, <laughs> so definitely leading them to one call the repentance to the Lord and points them to the reality that, you know, our time can come at any time. So are you right? As as we would say, um, you hear some just wonderful saints of the Lord saying, are you ready? Are you ready for the Lord to come? You know, are you ready? Is, mm-hmm. is your time come? And, and those are great words to have. And that's what Elisha is showing to him. Once again, ironic. And I want to hear some of your thoughts on this is that he wants to hear from Israel I mean, this is uh, 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 Damascus, this is Syria, it's quite a ways away, like you said, and they still want to go there, but not necessarily believe. Any, I mean, kind of goes with what you were saying in the first section of our reading. Any thoughts on that? Well, like you said, the, some of these stories in Second Kings, you're not quite sure how they fit in the timeline, so mm-hmm. we don't know exactly when, for example, the guy in chapter 5 was cured of his leprosy. Is, is this story after that? I mean, if, if it's after that, then it makes perfect sense that they would send to Israel. Right, and right, ask right. As a prophet or something along these lines. And, and maybe it is. I mean, it might be just some of the, like we said, in, in regard to the, the famine in, in the first part, when exactly is this famine? Is it the the famine kind of tied in with the siege of the previous chapters. And then at the end, you know, he writes about this woman coming back finally. Uh, So yeah, if Naaman has already been healed, then yeah, this makes perfect sense that he would, he knows that Mm -hmm. there's a prophet down there or at least knew that in the past there was. And so when he shows up, he's like, well, go ask him. he, He did something for for Naaman, maybe That's he can true. do something for me. That's true. Yeah, kind of like a good luck charm um, type of mm-hmm. mentality for sure. Yeah. But right now I want to talk more about uh, what happens in the next verses, but we'll do that right after our break. We are studying Second Kings chapter 8 with Pastor Scott Adel, and we'll be right back. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia, reading to her six-month-old son about Jesus from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. And welcome back. We are studying 2 Kings chapter 6 with Pastor Scott Adel. And as we look at these verses, we move forward now um, towards the next, the end of this next section 
where it is Elisha's like, well, you, you'll, you'll recover, but you're, you're going to die. And so now we get a feel for more of what's going to happen. So, Pastor, let's dig in 11 through 15. Um, unless you had something great to say in the past verses. They're still the same. Now just go on. Yeah. <laughs> Good, let's do it. Verse 11. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant, who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord Yahweh has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he said, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in the water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. So kind of an up and down feel of this. Uh, He knows the story. And then (laughs) Elisha gives a very big stare or a scary stare and then starts crying and says, well, why are you crying? What, what do you think is happening here as we go through these verses? I mean, here, here's one of the places you clearly see what a burden it is to be a prophet mm. at, a, at a time like Elijah and Elisha's time. And I mean, sometimes we have this idea, hey, it would be awesome to be able to see the future or it'd be awesome be able to do the kind of miracles that those guys did. But the reality, especially at this time, is they see the future, and the future for both the North and eventually the South is not a good one. And that he weeps because he he sees this. I mean, in these revelations or dreams or however it is that God communicates to him, Elisha sees the future, and he's standing before a wicked king, a future wicked king of Syria, and he's already weeping over it. You, you have this, as I said elsewhere, you have um, the, the, the prophets kind of stunned sometimes by the revelations they see. Uh, it's either Ezekiel or Daniel at one point says he's just kind of stunned for, for days. Like, he, he had to go to bed for days over what he saw. You also have Jesus uh, lamenting over Jerusalem. Like, these are his people. These are the ones he wanted to come and save, and yet they would not come to him. And you have, you have in this sense, uh, Elisha seeing the future of his country, and yet, obviously, much of his country is full of sinners and, and people who do not believe, and yet he still loves them, just as Jesus still loves uh, the people of Jerusalem as he's going to his own death. You get, uh, so this is obviously one reaction, we would probably say a, a, a good reaction. You do have it contrasted maybe with Jonah, who, of course, famously runs away, and he appears to be running away because he can't stand the Assyrians, and he doesn't want to give them the offer of mm. 
forgiveness. And it, it doesn't say specifically why in the book of Jonah. I mean, God takes him to task for, for not wanting to preach the good news to these people. But it, it could have very much been something like Elisha. He knows what Assyria will do. Mm. He, he could have been given these same kind of visions, and, and his reaction was not just weeping, but it was like, nope, if that's the truth, then I'm going as far away from there as I can. Uh, but it, it is just, as I said, one of these times you see the burden of being a prophet. You see the burden of, of seeing the future. You, you get it elsewhere in Isaiah and Jeremiah, too. But here you have Elisha's battle with it. And, that, and, and as we see that, the, it's not, oh, they're going to be unfaithful. No, just, oh, that stinks. You know, it's very, um, it's very graphic that you will yes, fire in their fortresses, kill their young man, and, and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. I mean, these are... Yeah, no, it's appalling. Oh. Say it again. I mean, he knows that, that's what warfare is like. Ah, yeah. That's what happens in war. And you are going to go to war with Samaria. And the king, you know, responds, well, who, who am I that I can... I could do this. And Elisha says, because you're going to be king. And he has a spring in his step as he goes back home. <laughs> kind of how it reads. That's right. That's right. Well, and you think about this, and at the end of Second Kings chapter 5, you have, um, you have Gehazi and you have Elisha, and Gehazi goes and gets money from Naaman and all this, and you get that perspective that when he goes back, Elisha's like, so what have you been up to? And Gehazi's like, oh, I no nowhere. I didn't go anywhere. Kind of like a high school kid trying to justify with their parents. <laughs> and and you get the feel nothing. that he knew exactly what had happened. You get that feel from Elisha a number yeah. of times. And you, I never yeah. thought about that as a burden, um, but definitely it would be a burden because how many times – and our own children, our own family. It's like, okay, I know you guys did bad stuff, but I really don't want to know the details. And so you see the burden almost as a parent um, that you don't really want to know that, but sometimes you have to and because you're called to care and love for the people that he puts in front of you. So that is a wonderful perspective of putting um, the burden on Elisha as opposed to this great, well, I know everything. This is great. Well, not so great. Absolutely, uh -huh. yeah. So no, as you said, I mean the visions that he has are, are graphic and appalling, mm. and clearly terrifying, sad. Yeah. So Elisha um, tells him this. Hazael uh, goes back to the king, and he says, "So what did Elisha say?" And he says, "Oh, you'll be fine." And then he dies. <laughs> so it's kind of this is crazy. No, he doesn't die. He's killed. He's murdered. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. Well, yeah, that's yeah. true. Better way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it's clear that Hazael sees this as his opportunity, and he takes it. He says, "I'm going to be king." He says, "He knows I'm going to kill you," and he fulfills that prophecy. Yeah, yeah, that's even even worse because you see all these times where, um, okay, this this would happen, and you think, oh, well, he's going to die anyways. May as well do this. Well, no, that was actually the prophecy that you would be the one to do it, and the evil that you would do, and it makes you think about how hard the heart really is. Because if someone were to come to to me, I would pray for the Holy Spirit. This is once again goes back to what you said at the beginning: the Spirit of Truth. 
that if someone said, you are capable of horrible things, let me give you a few examples, that there you'd like, oh my gosh, I need to repent. I need to change my ways. And that doesn't happen at all. He goes, says, you'll be fine. Boom. All of a sudden there's a, there's a cloth over his face and he's being suffocated. I mean, this is, he's suffocating the king. I mean, it just shows you how hard the heart really is. And why is that important for us to remember um, for us nowadays, how hard the heart really is? Because it it shows us just how hard the Holy Spirit has to work to crack it, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. It, it, It just shows us how wicked we are and that repentance and faith truly is a miracle. It truly is a gift of God. It, it's not a foregone conclusion. It's not just what happens naturally, because the Bible describes us as children of wrath, right? And right. so Isaiah's actions are actually perfectly in line with that. Mm. Uh, it, it is the people who repent and come to believe. That's what sticks out. I mean, the, bar, the Bible marks this off as that's a gift of God, and you should recognize that. Well, thanks be to God. I think that's a great way to put it. Often we think repentance is on ourselves, but it is a gift, a gift from the Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth, as you said. And each day, um, the life of the Christian is a life of repentance. So let's keep moving forward. Now we get to Jehoram. It doesn't necessarily get better. So 16 through 24, as we hear of Jehoram. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord Yahweh was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zer with all the chariots and rose by night, and he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites, who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Azahiah, his son, reigned in his place. So we have some family connections here. How did it go for Jehoram? Well, not exactly well, but you see already, I mean, you could tell already, as we said, that things are not going well. I mean, if you recognize that Ahab is a wicked king, which is exactly the way the scriptures describe him, and then you see that he started to intermarry, his family has started to intermarry in the South, uh, all the readers have to be like, that can't be good. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's not. Uh, verse 18 says, and he walked in the ways or the way of the king of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done because he'd married Ahaz's daughter. And that is not a good sign. It's, uh, I mean, it just says he does what is evil on the side of the Lord, right? Walking in the way of the kings of Israel is not a good path. Mm. And it said that over and over in regard to the, the north. And, I mean, if you start to fill this in with 
prophets outside of first and second kings. I mean, if you start to fill it in with prophets like Isaiah and Amos and some of these other guys, you know that during these times they're starting to say, listen, if you keep this up, if you do not repent, God will destroy this land. And when you hear that about the North and now you find out that Ahab and his family have married into the South, you just have to be thinking, well, well, if he was going to destroy the North, and indeed that, that will come true, then what does that mean for the South as well? And of course, that's where Second Kings leads to at the end, and, and uh, it leads to their destruction as well. But we were talking uh, earlier about one, one of the things that also runs through First and Second Kings mm-hmm. is God's faithfulness to his promises. And this is what we see in verse 19. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. Now, God doesn't destroy Joram and Judah right now, which he could, and he'd be perfectly in the right to do so because they're evil and idolatrous. Yet he doesn't because he remembers David and the promises that he made to David. So he holds off on that destruction. That's a great, that's a great pulling us back a little bit because it can be a little bit like, wow, they're so far off that there's God is, is just ready to, you know, give them a, give them leprosy. He's ready to have uh, the Kings be suffocated to death. And it's just the way it is, you know, um, it's very good to be pulled back to remember that God keeps his promises, probably a good daily sermon to give to ourselves based on the word of God. At the same time, yeah. I found it interesting, verse 20. You got the Edomites who are now revolting. And when you go back to chapter 3, it's the Moabites who are just north of them on the other side of the tracks, if you will, <laughs> on the wrong side of the tracks of the Jordan River. And you had the Moabites who were rebelling. So they're like, hey, let's go take them out. So Israel and Judah united and they went through Edom. And it talks about how the king kind of united with them. So now we're starting to see a little bit of, um, I want to hear your perspective on this too, Pastor. You're starting to see uh, former, quote, allies are now becoming enemies. So things are getting so bad that even the Edomites don't want anything to do with these people. So any thoughts on that? Well, Edomites, and the other, the other one is Libna, which is actually just a city in Judah. Oh, okay. Oh, that, really? Uh, That's okay. That, I didn't look that, at that. They, that they revolt at the same time. And so one of the things you see is that we saw in David and Solomon's day that, at that time, a combined Israel was at the height of its powers. And not only were they at peace within their borders, but they even controlled those places outside their borders, like Moab and Edom and Philistia. And it goes back to, uh, to the promises that God had talked to, talked to them about when they go into the promised land, about Listen, if you follow my ways, if you follow my commandments, I, I will give you this land, and, and your boundaries will go all the way to the river Euphrates, even down to Egypt, which would be a, a huge, oh, uh, yeah. comparatively huge empire. But in David and Solomon's day, it is basically that land plus all of these around. And now you start to see these kind of things get undone. That no longer are Edom and Moab going to be under the house of David, and they're going to fight back. And then Libna, which is, as I said, just a, a city in Judah, 
also just going to be like, well, and we don't know exactly why, but also going to say, you know what, we don't, we don't want a part of this either. And you see the cracks starting to form and break off, and the the, the promised land as and and the, the the height of the kingdom is falling, and it's falling fast. Yeah. The, the land flowing with milk and honey is not so flowing and attractive anymore. Absolutely. That is a good way. That might be nice there, but I don't want to go there is kind of how they're, how they're living their life. So we hear of Jehoram, and like you said, the families are interconnected, which is a good reminder for us when we hear these words. It's not so much that like, oh, you know, the, the Adels and the Finnerns should never, you know, interact kind of understanding but it comes to faith and these were people who were who were lacking faith that they were um it wasn't because of their last name or their lineage it was a faith issue the same issue you have with with solomon and his 700 concubines and and uh clearly there was a faith issue there too and, and they talk about don't don't intermarry with them or their phoenicians or anybody or jezebel um it's a faith issue and that's a good reminder for, for our listeners, um, for you, our listeners, that it is important uh, of, of the faith connection you have with people, which is why it's been so powerful to be back in worship uh, and, and why yeah. it's so important for us to be connected as family and everything. And um, now that we're getting back to that, I, I wanted to ask you this, Pastor, just uh, what are your thoughts on that? Now that we're kind of getting back together, why is it important that we are interconnected in a faithful way as Christian people? Well, the, the 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 scriptures always talk about you know the, the church being in fellowship and in community. It's not just something that we do on our own behind closed doors. I mean, Jesus does talk about praying that way, mm-hmm. but he also prays in public and in the worship service. And it's so we're not always in community. Uh, we we do have privacy, but at the same time coming together has always been something that the church does. And when that's taken away from us, just, just as with anything, when, when community is taken away from us, something is lost. And especially for us who are called to go and hear God's Word with our own ears from our pastor, and when we are called to eat and drink Christ's body and blood, that only happens when you're together in fellowship. That only happens when you're in community. That doesn't happen off on your own. And so, absolutely, the church is a community. It is the people who are called out to be God's people, and they're called together to do so. And that, as a, as a body that believes in word and sacrament, I mean, the sacraments can only be done in person. And that's where I had a, this past Sunday... Um, we had a, a, one of our beloved, uh, she's not even a member. She just keeps coming to church. That's kind of how I talk about it. But she, she comes to church and she just loves being, she grew up Catholic and comes to our church and, and, uh, still technically is Catholic, but comes to worship. And, and she, she came, her husband passed away the week before and, and they're having a Catholic funeral and, and she came to worship for the first time in probably 16 months. And when she came back, she when she was going out, and she said to me, "Say, you know what, Pastor? It is God's grace that has been poured upon me being here, not only in worship, but by the people who are here." 
And I thought that really connects so well with what you're saying too is, is, and she, she just loves talking about God's grace, which is really fun because she, she mm-hmm. speaks about things that we've kind of just always had. Um, but she speaks it's about that. This is not everywhere. She granted. said, yeah, take it for granted. Yeah. And, but I, I thought that was a really good way of us thinking about why it's important. It goes to our marriages. We see this with obviously Jezebel and Ahab. We see this in our, our churches and why it's important. You see this in the Kings that when they're surrounded mm-hmm. by faithful people, they make much better decisions in their life. Yep. And so I was thinking about all that. There's a lot going on in my mind right here. So can you, can you, yeah, any last I mean, thoughts before we move on? Yeah, I mean, this is exactly why it mattered that David had a heart for the Lord and why it matters when Solomon starts to build idolatrous temples Mm. or when Jeroboam builds idols and sets them up. As the leader of the country, they do exactly that. They lead. And when they lead faithfully, this is good for the people. Mm. When they lead idolatrously, this is bad for the people. That, as you said, we, we all interact and we're all connected to these various communities that we're a part of. And it is easier to be faithful when people around you are faithful. On the other hand, when people around you are not faithful, I mean, as, as we all know, when we send kids off to school sometimes or you know, out to places where they're not going to be with us, that uh, the world starts to work on them and that peer pressure is a, a real thing and that uh, it is tempting when people are not believers to not believe like them. And this is why it's important as we look at the next reign in Judah. As we have said this before, Judah might have been better than Israel, but it doesn't mean they were doing well either. <laughs> so Correct. let's continue on. We'll read from 25 all the way through the rest of chapter 8. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. She She was a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord Yahweh, as the house of Ahab had done, and, and for he was a son-in-law to the house of Ahab. So he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram returned and to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah. And when he fought against Hazael, the king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. Now, one reflection that I do have here, Pastor, and I want to hear your reflections, because this one was kind of a mess, but think about how many times it says of his connection to Ahab. And it has everything to do with, and by the way, it's connected to Ahab, just showing how it was not going well. Thoughts on these verses? No, you. Uh, I mean, we did talk about this a little bit earlier. When when Ahab starts to infect, he starts to infect everywhere. And you see it as one of the commentaries pointed out. Not only do you see Ahab constantly brought up and their connections to him, but you notice the names all start to sound the same. So you have a Joram eventually up south or up north and down south. I think Ahaziah might be another name that, that repeats. And it, 
it gets confusing even reading them because you're like, well, wait, a, who's running what? And and then you just eventually find out, well, they're all related to Ahab, mm. and that's not a good thing. <laughs> it's Absolutely. Not a good thing at all. Absolutely. And so here is this rain. Um, and it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it says, for he was a son-in-law to the house of Ahab. And it goes back to what you mentioned about the, the close of the commandments in our small catechism. And I invite our, our, our listeners to continually go back to this because it really is um, God almost warning people <laughs> about first and second kings. Because it says this in Exodus 20. Um, this is the close of the commandments. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now this, I wanted to highlight this because you brought this up so well about promise and the problems. For here you have third and fourth generations of those who hate me, which three or four compared to a thousand is a big difference. And so yeah. I'm trying to trying to think about how we can relate this to today, about our own families, about our own lives, about our own churches, that we have the reality that, you know, that there will be consequences for our sins, but at the same time, there will be a deep love because of our Lord's love for us. How do we take those kind of words, looking at kings, and relate that today? Any 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 thoughts on that? Yeah, well, one of the things we said here, for those who hate the Lord, for those who continue, and not in repentance, but continue in the sin, oftentimes the effects get worse and worse. And so we saw the uh, the famine or the drought or whatever increase from three years. Now when his son has a famine, it's for seven years. Mm. And now whereas Ahab fought against kings of Syria and these kind of things, now his son is fighting against Hazael, which is the guy we talked about earlier becoming king. And it kind of lines it up for the next chapters when Ahab's house will be wiped out, right? Mm-hmm. So his sons refuse to repent, and so they don't die peacefully in their beds. Instead, they, they die fighting, and, and Jezebel gets what she deserves, too. But the other way, so, so you have that. That's obviously bad. We should learn from that, not do that. <laughs> but on, on the, the uh, other side is showing my love to a thousand generations of those who love me. And I mean... Maybe you do this too, but when I when I talk about this in confirmation class, I just ask the kids, so how long is a generation? And you get, you know, any uh, normally, I think you're going to say it's somewhere between 20 or 30 years. So I say, okay, just pick 25, right? So, so, so we have four per century. So how many, how many generations has there been since Jesus? You say, well, let's see, four, four for every hundred years, and we have 20 times, 20 times four is, what, 80? 80, 80 generations. Mm. So, I mean, just going back 2,000 years, you're at maybe 80 or 100 generations. I mean, we're nowhere near right. 1,000 yet. If you, if you count back to David's day, how many generations? You're talking about another 1,000 years. Let's say 150. Let's make it 200. Spot them, spot them too. Let's say 400. 400. Mm. You're not even halfway there. No. To, to David's day, which was 3,000 years ago. This is how 
overwhelming and overpowering his love and his grace are, as he said, it, it would go to a thousand generations. And you realize when you start looking through history, have we even had a thousand generations? Right. Oh. I mean, has a, that's a ton of people. It's a ton of generations. We're not there yet. This is how overwhelming his grace is. Pastor, for 30 seconds here, how would you summarize this chapter? I would summarize this chapter as, as we said earlier, God keeping his promises, especially on the good half, like he, he helped the, the, the Shunammite woman and also helped uh, Elisha. But also, when he is ignored and when he is rejected, bad things are going to come. And this chapter kind of sets up what's coming next. Pastor Scott Adel of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois, helping us uh, be in the good word, giving us a good word in God's strong word was 2 Kings chapter 8. Pastor Adel, thank you again for being our guest. Thanks for having me. Saints of our Lord, our Lord is faithful. If he's going to be faithful with Hazael and Jehoram and Ahaziah, and he's going to be faithful to all the members of Ahab's family, well, we know without a fact, with fact, that our Lord will be faithful to us. Not because of what we have done, but because he is faithful to a thousand generations. 25,000 years um, is how faithful he'll be, which means it's forever. And that promise is for you on account of our Lord Jesus. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.